oxymorons. I'm your host, Joel Bouchard, a doctoral student in psychology, and with me is Mr. Norman Gayford, a professor of English and philosophy. History shows again and again how nature points out the folly of men. This is not a quote by a famous philosopher, but rather the lyrics to a Blue Oyster cult song titled Godzilla. When we think philosophy, not many of us picture a man in a latex dinosaur costume destroying a movie set of Tokyo. But until Norm gives us some background, you'll just have to trust me that that's exactly what Godzilla was intended to be. An unlikely addition to the philosophical pantheon, we hope that he doesn't bring down the pillars holding the place up. <laughs> All right, so um, we talked about it last week, um, sort of impromptu, yeah. considering, yeah. you know, yeah. we're going to do Godzilla. <laughs> So um, we're holding true to our word. Um, and you and I were talking about a little bit before we started. Um, in doing research for it, uh, you get um, it's you have to weed through it a little bit because yes, you if you look up uh, a famous philosopher, um, <laughs> you're pretty much uh, guaranteed to get results that refer to philosophy. <laughs> if yep. you if you look up a pop culture uh, monster film. Uh, even if you slap the word philosophy on it, you're not guaranteed to get something that's related to philosophy. So um, a little bit, a little bit challenging weeding through it. But there, in doing so, there was some very interesting things and a very diverse um, interpretation of um, what the movie was about, which is really fascinating yeah. and um, really part of what um, art is all about. You know, in in a lot of ways. It is. And, and I don't know, we might have to actually start with, in case you haven't, you don't know what Godzilla is, probably anybody listening would, this is a, a behemoth, a leviathan, a gigantic monster. It's uh, called a kaiju in, in uh, Japanese folklore. And, and this is this gigantic radiation fire breathing dragon uh there have been 35 m movies uh in the whole pantheon of godzilla began as a film in uh, japan uh a few years after world war ii and the original japanese movie was quite authentically what joel was talking about uh, the idea of making some metaphorical statement about uh, man toying around with nature and specifically about the atomic bomb. Hmm. And, and if you watch the uncut original or, you know, representation and it's findable, uh, and then you watch the Americanized version because we, the American, uh, American company said, ah, we'll, we'll, we'll distribute this. <clears throat> and they cut the heart out of Godzilla, basically. Uh, in the Americanization of it, they they clipped in uh, a little side story with a then-famous actor named Raymond Burr, who was known to many people in the 50s and 60s and 70s for various TV shows, Perry Mason, a lawyer show, and Ironside, the police show. And, and, and so the American reporter was... Uh, taking on what was going on with Godzilla in Tokyo. But Godzilla essentially comes up against the American military and turns around hmm. in the Americanized version. It's just not the same movie and not the same story. And thus, it has progressed from a, an atomic power 
figuration and and just great good fun with a guy as you said in a latex godzilla suit kicking the heck out of buildings and part of the fun of watching it uh i I did with my son we watched so so many of them is knowing that it's a guy in a suit so it's the meta thing Mm -hmm. uh at the same time that you say yeah i'll accept that that's a city uh the special effects that everyone needs now in order to somehow be into a tale didn't it wasn't the same Mm-hmm. I'm sounding old when I was a kid. <laughs> uh, I mean, you knew you just were playing the game and knew it was. And but then it's morphed over the years into many things. And, and so now it's essentially more or less not a, a political tale, but also a, a climate metaphor. Yeah. So there's there's a lot to unpack there. Um, you went ahead and started answering my first question before I asked it, which was um, talking about the real life background of, of Godzilla. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe we'll we'll cover a couple more details before we move on. But, yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of things um, going on there. But I think that before we dive into it, I, I do want to talk about that part of it a little bit, the special effects part. Right. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I think that there's an interesting psychological and philosophical implication of that. Um, the way you were talking about in the fifties, there was a, a suspension of disbelief, you know, when you see uh, the guy in, in the costume destroying the city. Um, and that's kind of, it's, it's a, sort of analogous to reading in some regards, right? When you're reading a, a work of fiction, you know it's fiction, and you have to use your imagination in order to bring the story to life. Yes, yeah. It seems like watching film and TV in the early time would have been more like that. You know, it's like, okay, I know this is a guy in a dinosaur costume destroying cardboard boxes, but I ha- I'm trying to imagine this being a city and being a monster and that sort of thing. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's interesting, and it is the subject of, of some psychological research today. I'm looking into with how realistic um, special effects have gotten, what the impact is on the brain and specifically the developing brain of um, young people when it comes to um, violent video games or scary movies or these sorts of things. Because, um, you know, even even in my day, right, I'm not an old guy, but I remember, <laughs> um, you know, things like um, the nightmare before Christmas being scary. Mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. But the claymation of of that versus um, the special effects of movies that are shown to young, you know, little kids today pales in comparison, right? So what are the effects of um, having these these hyper-realistic sort of, and, you know, now it even goes beyond two-dimensional screens and into three-dimensional virtual realities um, with, you know, violent or scary or, you know, these, these very realistic things. What sort of effects does that have on the human psyche and and you know when we project that into the future what what is this generation going to um how's that going to impact storytelling and how they approach um fictional tales you know it's a good question it's a very good question because it's still ultimately storytelling <clears throat> and I, I think I, I, I'm trying to put myself in a position of if if I'd heard a Godzilla story before I ever saw a Godzilla movie, which wasn't going to happen. <laughs> there was uh, so we, but 
uh, like Doctor Who or other kinds of many different actors playing the, the role, male and now female. Uh, the Godzilla of the first film and the Godzilla of the one that was out a year or two ago are almost unrecognizable in in things such as size. Yeah, that was Godzilla's gone from like a an eighty foot monster to a four hundred foot monster. So, of course, when you can do more special effects, everything can get bigger, and including the walloping uh, fib that one has to tell oneself that such a creature could exist, mm-hmm. its bone structure could exist, whatever. But you don't go to the movie to do analyzing all of that until after, right? Um, but still, with your, your question about storytelling, I think that if you get to a place where the only thing that will scare you is a fully realized creature in three dimensions. I, I'm really not sure that we could get there. I still think you could scare any generation if you tell a story right, mm-hmm. especially if you're around a campfire and uh, you have a stick and a stone nearby you and can snap it with one hand just at the right moment when something's coming. You know? right. <laughs> uh, but, I, but I do think that it's, it's psychologically uh, uh, unanswerable necessarily yet. To what degree? I, I, I think the more you have everything shaped for you in such explicit detail, uh, perhaps the less you are inclined to imagine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that you know, there's um, there's there's ways of of looking. I think M, M. Night Shyamalan is probably the the closest in modern times where somebody that doesn't rely on special effects to still tell a, a sort of scary story. Right. Mm-hmm. So that, that's sort of a triumph of storytelling over, over special effects in a, in a lot of ways. Um, but yeah, I think that, you know, there's, and there's two, there's two issues you're looking at there is one is how does hyper-realistic effects impact the psychology of a developing brain? And then the other side of that coin is what, is the impact on storytelling of these hyper-realistic tools, right? Mm-hmm. You know, how does storytelling suffer? And I think that that is an interesting one. That's what I'd like to see a little bit more research on. Um, I've been reading some things, some studies about creativity recently, and they found um, one of the interesting ones that I read was um, that creative people um, tell a lot of stories. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and my wife will tell you this because I... You know, I for I I don't generally um, think of myself as being very accomplished, but I, I think of myself as being pretty creative. And she's always yelling at me for just making up um, very long, <laughs> intricate stories. <laughs> but it's fun, isn't it? Yeah, and, and some of them, you know, and some of them are just flights of fancy, and some of them are so realistic that she asks me, "Well, is that true?" Mm. And lots of times I'll be telling her actual facts and she'll be like, wait, wait a minute. Is that, is that true? You're just making this up. You know, she doesn't even know anymore. Right. Um, and so, yeah. So if, if creativity, human creativity is sort of influenced um, by this ability to um, generate stories and, and imagine things that, that aren't there mm-hmm. and sort of tie these things together. Um yeah, does hyper-realistic um, special effects, the ability to just have these things sort of handed to you, yeah. do you think that's detrimental to the development of, you know, original creative stories within your mind? Or 
Does it help? Does it give you more? I'm, I'm reversing my 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 over over generalized statement of a few minutes ago. I'm sitting here listening to you and thinking, no, no, no. I as an example, so uh, uh, a a kid, a very small kid, a toddler. Let's suppose they enjoy The Lion King and Scar and and or or any any monster, any villain. Let's say. Ursula in The Little Mermaid. All right. But then the child engages, and yes, I'm talking from personal experience, the child engages with you to tell a completely different story with Ursula or Scar. They aren't locked into the, the story that they see in a movie, necessarily. My granddaughter has given me so many gifts of just of presence over the years but very apropos to what we're talking about now she's developed a recent phrase uh, tell me a story by mouth hmm. as opposed to read me the story she wants sometimes wants to read sometimes wants to look at the book herself and call it reading of course and and sometimes just tell me a story by mouth and I rather like that because that's a cue that I know I'm supposed to be making something up. And I have no trouble doing that because I, it's like, <laughs> like you, it's creative. Oh, tell, tell me a story about this cookie. Okay, once in a pot of time and <laughs> on we go. Um, so I don't think that necessarily it's a detriment if, um, if the child has an environment and an inner structure that is um, happy to take in and manipulate those things. I mean, it, it might be vaguely arguable that Godzilla is part of the collective unconscious that Jung proposed long ago, not not or or Gojira, which is what his, the original name was in, in the Japanese language. But uh, monsters certainly. You know, we've talked about back to the saber toothed tiger, which you occasionally dreamed about you know and but but of course the monsters are in our heads they're always going to be in our heads yeah yeah so that was a little bit of a tangent about storytelling but i think that it is applicable to godzilla so people who who tuned in for godzilla don't tune out just yet we're, no, we're, no, we're no, gonna get into it <laughs> but yeah i think that that is an important aspect of it the collective unconscious part because when i think of godzilla i think of cthulhu right oh like yeah it just yes, immediately yes, pops yes, yes. to mind and <laughs> You know, is there any way of knowing if the the creator of Godzilla had any sort of interaction with that story or if he if it was, you know, if he thought about, you know, the nuclear aspect, you know, of World War Two and, and built his own story, um, you know? Oh, you mean for 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 Lovecraft, for for, for Cthulhu? Because yeah. it would be it seems like it'd be very, a very far fetched to, to think that he had any sort of interactions with Lovecraft. Yeah, yeah, right. I mean, Lovecraft was gone before Godzilla entered the um pantheon so to speak uh, but still the idea of gigantic old ones i mean that's that's really the the commonality yeah, yeah and there's there's another culture i can't remember who but they had a story about um uh, a, a large sea creature that um it, it was sleeping and it would just be it would look like mountains mm -hmm. on the on the sea mm -hmm. but occasionally what it would awaken and it was this giant fish right, right that, would, that would and then you can go to the bible with leviathan i mean if you look if you if you uh, i can't quote exactly the paraphrase wouldn't be 
powerful enough that it would essentially uh, consider Leviathan the gigantic sleeping beast to arise. I mean, and 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 Norse mythology has Fenris wolf mm. and and Surtur, uh, the gigantic flaming creature we so we just like to make these gigantic things yeah and i think that the the history of godzilla um speaks to that a little bit like you said he started out 50 meters high um he's up to like 300 meters high or something now he keeps getting bigger and so but our skyscrapers get bigger don't they you can't have i mean part of that and i didn't mean to interrupt you on that but it just so so we have a 150 foot creatures stumbling along uh, among buildings that are eight, nine hundred feet. It's not going to be all that. I mean, it'll be impressive. King Kong was impressive in the 30s, you know, when the movie comes out, claymation and all that. But King Kong is, if I saw a a little graphic that took the original King Kong and the current King Kong, it's the same thing. Mm -hmm, Right. Yeah, they get, they get bigger. And so, the thing is, I, I don't think the monsters need to get bigger to be scarier, right? Like, if you think about it, or you have Godzilla, you have Jurassic Park, right? These are essentially, you know, for all intents and purposes, dinosaur-sized dinosaurs. Right. You know, they don't make them, they don't scale them up multitudes of times. Right. So, I, But I think that's because the nature of the monster is different, right? Dinosaurs are scary in and of themselves. So... Godzilla doesn't have to be big to be scary. If all we're talking about is the physical imposition, there's a metaphorical thing going on there. He has to be overwhelming, right? right. That's part of the story. So right. um, we'll head into that. First off, do, is there any other real life background to Godzilla that we should discuss before we head into the fictional part uh, i i don't think so i think it's an uh, i think it is enough to to just uh, the quick review it's enough to say that it, the conception of the japanese uh, production company and the and the writer and producer uh, was changed relatively soon after the the original movie came out and but it it is uh, we mustn't forget that it is locked in anchored in uh, a Japanese folkloric storytelling of a kind that, that wasn't ours. Yeah, I think that that is the important part to cover with with the real background of Godzilla is um, that the creator of Godzilla, he, he imagined this being a powerful philosophical statement um, about nuclear weapons to the point where he actually said that he thought that the film might end war, <laughs> you know, like yeah. he thought it would, it would be that powerful. Um, it obviously didn't pan out that way. And it was probably for a number of reasons. Um, one might be, you know, he was overestimating um, maybe the special effects of the time. He originally imagined it being stop action. They ended up running out of time and, and budget. And yeah, so he right. had to put a guy in a suit, um, which might have added to the entertainment aspect of it, but not to the. Um, the sort of emotional or intellectual punch of it. Mm. But the biggest part that you talked about at the beginning was that when it was imported to United States audience, the message behind Godzilla was stripped away and was purely presented as an, an entertainment piece rather yeah. than something trying to make a political or um, hum, you know, humanistic statement. And, and then as, as, the, as the productions went on, and for some people, it became more and more, uh, well, I don't know, you want to go to this place yet. You were asking about, is there anything else we should say about the, the origins? And I th- I think we've done that. 
Yeah. So. Yeah. I think, um, you know, it's, uh, so we'll, we'll head into the, the fictional origins of Godzilla. So what, what is, what in the Godzilla universe, tell us about Godzilla. <laughs> well, <laughs> the interesting thing is like so many mythologies, there is more than one creation story let's say so so godzilla is uh, awakened this uh behemoth that is that is awakened uh by being drawn to atomic power the the idea was that the god that godzilla is the ultimate apex predator <laughs> and and but a couple of these monsters retreated toward the center uh, the core of the earth which couldn't do but anyway uh, it gets closer to that where because in their own primeval time they were consuming radiation to, to live but then the bombs start exploding and testing being tested and drop on, on hiroshima and nagasaki and and that interests the story that godzilla is drawn up to the radiation for food <laughs> all right and and then shows us what for when when he applies his own radiation. <laughs> um, but then then we have other iterations where Godzilla goes back into the ocean. Uh, sometimes in some of the movies, Godzilla breaks out of a of a glacier or an iceberg, which would take a long time to form around such a creature. So it's like, oh, he just went back in the ocean, suddenly got into an iceberg. So no, maybe we're in a multiversal thing now. I think that's how they would frame it now. We weren't mm -hmm. talking about such things back then. Well, in this Earth, this is how Godzilla shows up. Uh, then we have Space Godzilla, because uh, who's similar to Godzilla, but gets his power from crystals, and he's sent by aliens. There's a whole sub-story where there's these, these, these aliens that keep trying to conquer Earth by sending Godzilla-like monsters at the Earth. So they're uh, a cluster of filmic versions of this from planet x or wherever trying to and godzilla becomes the hero of earth and so you know he de demolishes a couple of cities at the start but then he's keeping us safe <laughs> <laughs> and so then you you can weave all of the well atomic power just it's not too hard to follow the dots it, it can it's very destructive but it can also be used to uh, keep us well right. <laughs> and then there's K king Ghidorah, the three-headed dragon and gamera uh, and uh, sort of a turtleish creature and 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 just a whole string of these things godzilla versus this godzilla versus that and and usually it's like any batman movie there are three or four villain villainous monsters coming after poor old godzilla but the most recent one godzilla is defeated by mammals because king kong defeats godzilla and subjugates godzilla in the last movie that that came out i was not happy with that movie for a lot of reasons it had tremendous special effects um, i don't think it knew what it was trying to accomplish and it certainly didn't accomplish not so they've woven this whole tale of going back into the center of the earth where gravity makes things look like the avatar movie and and all of these different creatures there and king but king kong is this ancient image of king kong a big old throne that king kong goes down to sit on and everything what are we doing here hmm. now we're making sentient uh, sentient gigantic monsters and they're calling them titans and so we're spilling into greek mythology 
uh, and kaiju and titan aren't the same kind of thing so it's getting really messy yeah and and i think that that last point there's a lot in there is as far as storytelling i mean to start with you know looking at godzilla's origins that's kind of cool because that sort of sort of ties back to what we were talking about with storytelling right um, creativity and storytelling, um, it, it'll take on a life of its own, right? You know, mm-hmm. somebody's going to come along and say, well, you know what? I don't, I'm not real happy with this this origin, so I'm going to create a different sure, one. Sure, and that's fine, yeah. But then on the tail end of that, um, you know, talking about um, sentient monsters and that sort of thing, from everything that I read, that is um, antithetical to what Godzilla was about. Yes. I, you know, Godzilla, as, as a figure, um, his purpose was to be this overwhelming force um, that didn't care about humans, right? He might destroy all of Tokyo um, and he might defend it against a monster, but he doesn't know. That's not his intent. It's not to protect humans or destroy humans. Right. He's just this overwhelming force that that does what he does, right? Mm-hmm. There's no sentience there. There's nothing that that's, that's calculating about it, um, which fits into sort of the metaphorical framework of what he was meant to be it makes it more frightening yeah and what it, and, and and for me this is this is oddly a connection back to, uh, connection to the alien film when the alien was just the alien and it was chasing you around the universe was very cold and very scary and very vast and there were things that were totally not understandable by us and the, you know the, it, that was really the background for the alien film and back to Godzilla that was the background I, for the the original um, then we, but then it becomes almost this comic thing what can we do next I remember uh, it wasn't the original destroy all monsters but I think it was a remake of destroy all monsters I don't know 10 12 years ago whatever it was and you've got these uh, one of the monsters doing a, a sort of a sideways leap like a soccer player to stop a mountain from hitting something that's protecting people. So so monster is superhero. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. Compared, I mean, you, you sit and you laugh and okay, that's fine. But you weren't sitting and laughing for the most part at, at the antics of Godzilla. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we'll get into this a little bit. Um, do you think that there's there's other characters or aspects of Godzilla's story that contribute to his overall narrative? Or do you think that after the Americanized version sort of stripped Godzilla of his message, these these other characters or elements of the story were just added in for entertainment purposes? Do you think that any of them serve a purpose philosophically uh, or narratively? If Well, to, to play with, the, I think that they have a, a purpose in the, the story uh, because the and I won't get into all the specifics of it. Then we've got this messiness with Toho Studios, which also has this relationship with American distribution. So, got to have a new monster. Can't sometimes you bring the old monster back, uh, but I mean, part of it is just for the novelty. But then you you get into gigantic robots that humans manufacture. Let's build a, a robot the same size as Godzilla to take out Godzilla. Hey, why don't we build a robot that's a lot bigger than Godzilla? And then we can... <laughs> no, it's always the same size, right? Uh, and we'll put a giant saw in his chest, as well as laser beams and, and claws. So we have metal, titanium claws, whatever. 
and it just it, it turns Godzilla into Superman. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. it, it finds a little kryptonite, so to speak, but but Godzilla always rises back up and and so I think they serve the purpose of trying to somehow say that mankind is human beings are technologically creative, but this, the uh, natural force will win out. Yeah, there's a fascinating interplay there that obviously was not intended in the original Godzilla, right? I think that the original Godzilla was meant to be a solitary creature, and that is what gave him his power, is you have this titanic creature um, that shows up that doesn't care about humans one way or the other, um, and that's that's terrifying, and there's nothing that you can do to stop him. Your weapons are useless against him. All these things are... And that's that's the the story that that reinforces the um, the nuclear metaphor and to a lot of extent the the climate change metaphor that wasn't intended at that point in time but is sort of developed. Yeah, yeah. I think when you introduce the other creatures, um, now it's changed into um, really just a boxing match with monsters, right? <laughs> so, so rock'em sock'em robots. And then what happens is the interplay gets interesting because you wonder to yourself, well, what is the human's role in this story then, right? If you have these two monsters boxing and we're just ants on the boxing mat, what, what is what is the human story? And then they, they, they sort of try to manufacture one, right? Where humans are um, in some ways attempting to manipulate the monsters or, or, or work together to find a different solution. Or, right, yeah. yeah, yeah it's, yeah. you know, human ingenuity or, or human's ability to manipulate these titanic forces. Um, but Mechagodzilla, which you've mentioned a couple times to me, is really, um, that's sort of, I can't make up my mind, right? Is that the saddest, like, you know, the peak of the worst part of the manipulation of the Godzilla story? Or is it the best part, right? Yeah, because, you, yeah. you know, like we, like I just mentioned, the original Godzilla story, the whole point of it was that he's this solitary creature that you know, is is putting mankind at his mercy. Mechagodzilla is diametrically opposed to that story, right? It's saying, okay, here's this overwhelming natural force and humanity is going to create something with technology that can challenge it, right? Now, yeah. I think that probably, you know, that if you stopped there, it sounds terrible, right? Like, okay, well, we've completely missed the point of the entire Godzilla story. Congratulations, right? Yeah. But Mecha Godzilla doesn't ever win, really. <laughs> like, you know, no, Mecha Godzilla gets gets ripped to shreds many times. The human beings inside the robot. And, well, first we got to admit it's cool for models and merchandising. Yes, and, there's a know, lot of selling and, toys, and, and, <laughs> and, 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 and uh, it's fun. It's fun. I've to, you know, I, I I won't throw stones about that. It has a degree of fun, just like any other kind of storytelling does. But yeah, I think it it's it's an attempt. Well, there's an article that I that that I was uh, reading wherein um, the writer is. I'm not entirely in sync with the writer about this, but the writer is suggesting that that Godzilla in most of the films is is uh, about pessimism and i don't know if you encountered that article or not i know i didn't read that one i'll have to forward it to you and it, but but that there is one godzilla that's an outlier the shin godzilla which was relatively recent oh, within the past six years i think and and in this 
human beings managed to create a, a biological um, answer to making Godzilla dormant, and and with the with the philosophical viewpoint in the the writer of the article saying it's unacceptable. Godzilla can't exist. In other stories, Godzilla really can't exist, but not for the reasons we'd say the bone structure wouldn't hold such a creature. Godzilla can't exist because Godzilla is pessimism itself, and pessimism itself uh, just simply cannot exist. Mm-hmm. You know, that's where the writer is going, and you read it and say, now, wait a minute. But but the argument uh, tends to this thesis that human beings, when they roll over and play dead, and and just uh, acquiesce to the up the power's too big and there's nothing we can do about it so it's just going to trump us. Um, that's when we're at our worst, and when we're at our best, we use our technology and our smarts to to overcome a problem, knowing full well that like any uh, Herculean Hydra monster, you're going to lop off a head and two more are going to take its place, and so you're going to. You're going to solve a problem, but that in turn is going to create more problems. But that's the very nature of human interaction with the world itself. And, but the, but ultimately, human beings prevail. That was the. I found it interesting to read. I found it a little bit repellent in in places because of the the enormity of the hubris. Yeah. <laughs> so that writer misses the boat in in some sense. There's a fine writer, but I think misses the boat on what the original Godzilla was doing, which is what you were talking about before. Um, uh, and I th- I think that, you know, you, you can have some optimism at the same time having the natural sense to realize that the world is bigger than any one of us. And no matter how smart we are, nature does win. <laughs> Death yeah. wins, you know. It, and even, even if... So by this writer's suggestion, you know, he didn't didn't say this we would we would say well look we're going to take care of the climate crisis we're going to build machines that are somehow going to uh make this a thing of the past and we're going to be fine well it's good to have optimism uh, but i don't see ordinary optimism playing out much yet uh, uh certainly among pockets of people certainly among small movements absolutely in in uh, uh, not trashing that at all but if when push comes to shove, if people have a chance to walk or drive their car, they're going to drive the car still. Yeah, yeah, and and applying a lot of that to the original message of Godzilla, which is you know the the idea of nuclear power in human hands. Um, I think that sort of parallels what you're saying throughout history, right? Um, at the time Godzilla was created, uh, there was this overwhelming fear of nuclear weapons, um, not just in Japan, but heading into the the following decades with right. the Cold War. Um, and we're we're starting to come back to that. There was a dormant period um, where Godzilla returned to the ocean, but he's starting to come back up, right, in modern times. Right. Um, and there are, you know, there isn't another aspect to that, right? There, We do have the capability for um, clean, in quotations, nuclear power that um, could solve the climate, climate crisis. And now we're now we have a crossover in metaphors, right? Now, now we're talking about both the nuclear and, nuclear and, and, and the climate nu- change. Nuclear and climate change at the same time. And, and yeah, Godzilla comes up. And, and But, you know, I, I pulled up some of the quotations from one of the more recent movies. Uh, 
Nature always has a way of balancing itself. This is the role that the humans play. The little ant-like humans who are running back and forth and having a soap opera set of relationships with each other. And and usually there's a kid who's smarter than the rest of them. Yeah. And, 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 and. These are tropes in, in these stories. But we have the scientists arguing with the military person, arguing with the government uh, avatar. And so nature always has a way of balancing itself. The only question is, what part will we play? Uh, uh, another one uh, between a senator and a scientist. So you'd want to make Godzilla our pet? No, we will be his. <laughs> now, uh, yeah, no, I don't. I don't think so. Uh, and and then uh, the mass extinction. And this is a, a a scientist. She has released another monster uh, to. F- really to fight Godzilla. But anyway, the mass extinction we feared has already begun and we are the cause. So that's acknowledging the force. Uh, You know, if Godzilla, uh, this the fictional universe, Godzilla and perhaps other kaiju uh, just demolish the planet, well, the planet's going to keep existing. Just like they've kept existing for untold millions of years somehow. Uh, it's it's that the humans might not. <laughs> yeah, and this is this is a common trope in philosophy that we keep coming back to, right? Anytime we address these big issues, like climate change or um, nuclear issues or um, you know anything, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What we're quickly confronted with when we look at these big issues is that um, the things that we deem important, um, it's all anthropocentric. Right. So like you just said, if, you know, if, if the world gets super hot and, and, you know, humans cease to exist, mm-hmm. the earth will still continue on for another several billion years until it's engulfed by the sun. <laughs> or, you know, if nuclear energy, um, nuclear energy doesn't have a, a, uh, you know, anthropomorphic personality. It's not a good or a bad a force it's just a force it just yeah. exists yeah. and we manipulate it and use it for things um and that's that's a big part of of this story and that's that's why you know i think that the the, the creator of godzilla imagined the story being so powerful is because if it had been told the way that he had written it godzilla portrays that very well this mm-hmm. overwhelming force um that humans are, are helpless to to stop and that doesn't care one way or the other about what happens to humans. Um, and that's, that's a powerful story. And like you said, I think that that's part of the appeal of the alien story too, is there's certain aspects of storytelling and that's um, it's, it's ironic in a way, right? We, we tell stories um, to have these uh, fictional things that, that teach us human lessons, mm-hmm. but sometimes those human lessons are told through characters that lack any human attributes. Yes. And that yes. that's the power of those stories, Alien and Godzilla. Um, but over time, the temptation to adapt human characteristics to them, to, to try to tell a human story in yep. another way, um, that sort of plays into it a little bit. People forget. I mean, one of the... This piece that I was talking about, the writer... Um, suggests that part of the the power of the Godzilla story is that when people forget how powerful nature is, that's when, as you say, Godzilla rises for one reason or another. But when 
people are distant from, have distanced themselves from using the world as they will use the world and, and whatever happens, well, there's going to be more oil because there always is. There are so many people who think that oil regenerates itself. I've, I've talked to some folks who believe that it's, it's, you know, it endless resources because the world will just keep making uranium and right. <laughs> you know, um, so, uh, but Godzilla is a kind of tale in that view that that says, uh, no, no, you've messed up, you've messed up, and so I'm. So it's almost a a punitive reminder, but that's still not as frightening as I don't care about any of you. I'm hungry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. And that's that's more of what nature is. And I think part of it is I, I think it's inextricably connected with the kinds of stories that people want. If people want a story where the universe is benevolent and will maybe it has to remind us pretty harshly once in a while, but then we'll do the right thing. <laughs> or the existential universe, Godzilla, that will trump anything and then go back to sleep or not, because it doesn't matter whether we're here or not. So that one's more frightening to me. I, I don't. I I don't see any reason to. Uh, the benevolent universe story doesn't work. For, no, for me. no. And I think in that way, you know, when we're when we're thinking about alien, right? That's that is a, a direct sort of correlate because whereas Godzilla um, was talking about nuclear um, issues and he's been adapted to climate issues. Um, alien is talking about space, right? But it's all nature. Like it is all of this. Again, it's that reminder that humans are not the center of the universe, right? And we get used to thinking that way, not explicitly. If you ask anybody, you know, they'll probably tell you, oh yeah, we're just, you know, little mites on a dust ball in space. But implicitly, um, biologically, we're hardwired to believe that we are the center of the universe and believe that our, our point of view is the point of view. We are, we are the people and and everything else bows to our, (laughs) our, um, whim. Um, or, you know, like, like you mentioned for different, um, characterizations of the story that, um, you know, maybe we're weaker or maybe we're, you know, we don't, but we're going to, you know, we're tenacious and we're smart. So we'll come up with something that will overcome these Things, right? And and I and I think it's time for Godzilla to rise again because <laughs> well I don't see a, I, I see tenacity in groups of people who are enormously um, subjugated now. Uh, there's tenacity of all kinds in in human nature, but as a collective, well, we've mentioned this before. I I. You know, all the the movies and science fiction that I have studied and enjoyed over the years and still do, uh, I I don't for a moment believe that a a gigantic uh, warrior species spacecraft lands and we all unite to fight the aliens. Nah, (laughs) there was was a science fiction TV show called Colony a a couple of years ago that really pretty much encapsulated. There'd be humans who would sell out to the aliens so they would stay alive. There'd be humans who would sort of lord it over other humans and give them to them for their purposes. And, you know, nah. No, as a, as a species, we are not noble <laughs> in in that way, or at least we've lost our nobility, and maybe it's, we have to find it again if it existed as an entire species. But th- there is another level to Godzilla that we haven't talked about yet, which is we've got the metaphor of, nuclear power we've got the the met or atomic power we've got the metaphor of of climate 
But there are people who also write about Godzilla as metaphor for the ultimate wound that human beings refuse to um, confront in themselves. So it's very psychological. Uh, Godzilla is that monster in our own closets on the inside that until we come to terms with, we can't defeat. Yeah, and that's that's an interesting paradigm to think about um, because it, it's sort of it's again it, it it's that it's human helplessness, right? Mm-hmm. So if we're talking about atomic or or climate change or space or whatever it may be, um, that aspect of it talks about how we are helpless against certain parts of our own psyche, right? And that gets into um, really murky philosoph- or psychological territory, right? Because um, there are people that like to believe that we are um, solely responsible for what we do. And, and, and philosophical too, right? We're, we're back to um, free will and determinism mm-hmm. in some regards. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're also into um, heavy um, social psychology territory, you know, and talking about how our interactions with other groups of people throughout our lifetimes um, shapes who we are. And again, with an anthropocentric viewpoint, right? We all like to think I'm my own person, right? Like I, I decided who I'm going to be, right? Or, or I'm actively deciding who I'm going to be. Yeah. yeah. But there is a, there's a body of research, <laughs> a large body of research that says, well, no, actually, um, it might not be your genetics, you know, you know, it might not be something you inherited from your parents, but the way that you were raised with your parents or with whoever, however you were raised or the groups of friends you had or the social groups that you were involved with um, as a young person, um, they do shape who you were and then consequently through the decisions you made who you are, mm-hmm. right? And that's the Godzilla story there, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. There, there's, there's the the You said that very well. I, I think the the idea is that there are elemental or primal moments in any of our lives where things happen that shape us, and they might be at a time when we are so little that we don't. Uh, remember how we process it and so maybe we process it through stories but and it's not that all there are all these evil people trying to hurt us constantly there are enough evil people and they try to hurt enough people but it's it's not like every single human being has had that bad fortune of somebody close to them doing that but there can be things that happen to one that cause one to fear the universe and and i think that's where that godzilla as you might as well say the Frankenstein, Frankenstein's monster, or the other, the the Cthulhu, the mm-hmm. the the thing, the old thing that just won't go away. Uh, I, I find that it just that I'd love to talk to a, a psychologist and say, so what do you make of Godzilla as image as metaphor for wound? Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, that'd be a fascinating thing to study. I, I mean, in monsters in general, but but specifically Godzilla. Um, because of the nature of the monster that is Godzilla versus some of those other ones, um, you know, Frankenstein or, or some of these other ones. Because to me, 
the you know from and from what I've researched, the the prime aspect of Godzilla, what separates him from other monsters, yes, is um the helplessness that humans face in in his presence, right? Um, he's not something that can be fought on an individual level or on a societal level. He's overwhelming, like he's there, right? And so, if you think about that in the metaphor of, of, of a personal wound, right? Yeah. Um, that has pretty interesting implications about how you, um, how you think about it, you know? This article by Nick, uh, is Nick, I, I won't say the name right, Averbush, uh, it was written in 2014, The Metaphor Behind Godzilla and How It Will Change Your Life. That's the one I need to send on to you. Um, he talks about this wound thing. And, um, but he's not, I mean, he's, he's, he's doing it, it's worth doing it, taking Godzilla as the fun that it is, but, saying, but does it tell us, uh, does it tell us more? But I think it, but it makes me think of all the different Godzilla movies I've watched over the years. And I don't, I can't tell you the title of which one this was from, but there was one in which there are two, two military guys and uh, a woman who's a, a scientist. And somehow they're they're tracking Godzilla. This is where Space God. I think it was the Space Godzilla movie comes in. But but they're tracking Godzilla. It's not hard to track. <laughs> you know they're following. And and the one of the military guys, his brother has been killed in a building that Godzilla knocked down, and he wants to kill Godzilla. And he's gotten some some special weaponry. He thinks it's going to help, but essentially it's a machine gun. So Arnold Schwarzenegger goes up against Godzilla, right? But but he's shouting at him and firing, and Godzilla's just looking at him and 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 doesn't it doesn't matter. And you can and the actor carries this off enough that you can and the other two characters say, "What are you doing?" And he he, he really doesn't know. Right? It's it's that that moment of doesn't know he killed my brother. This was not a, this was just a thing. So then you can carry that to all kinds of stuff that is very brutally horrific and personal to any one of us who've lost people or who or have people going through various difficulties that it's not really any fault. It's just a yeah. thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that that's, that is an interesting part of, of looking at it that way. And that sort of segues into the next question I was going to ask, which is, um, you know, are there elements of Japanese philosophy that inform Godzilla? And one of the interesting ones that I read was um, a guy talking about Godzilla as being a, a Shinto god of destruction, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He comes in, he destroys everything, and then things start over, right? Things start new again. If you think about it from a, like a personal a wound paradigm, then that's that's kind of interesting, right? Okay, Godzilla comes in and, and he, he destroys everything, and then you, you're, you're sort of left holding the pieces, right, a little bit. Right. You, know, you kind of have to, have to start something different. It's interesting. Are, are there other parts? Are there other parts of Japanese philosophy that that informed Godzilla, the story? I, well, I go back to the the, the one that is that has so influenced me that I continue to read about um, that the concept of kokoro, um, heart mind as as one thing, not separated as the Western philosophies have separated the two. Of logic and emotion, but but heart and mind is one thing, and and I think that there are elements of, of Kokoro in 
in some of the films. Uh, I, I think that scene that I just uh, you know, vaguely described in one of the Space Godzilla movies uh, points to that. The realization of that uh, mentality and emotionality, the essence of what we are, is all bound up together. Uh, when the humans interact with Godzilla, and how they interact with Godzilla, if you can even call it interaction, uh, I, I think leads to some consideration of that concept. Hmm. So, does any of Godzilla's message remain after all these years, do you think? Going back to the original Godzilla, we've talked about how it's been adapted from um, right. atomic uh, considerations into climate change considerations. Do you think that that is some remnant of the original message, or do you think that it's it's something that's been appropriated to fit our times and our culture? Well, I, th I think it's I think there's some appropriation, but I think going back to what you said before about the very nature of storytelling, <laughs> storytellers appropriate things for other storytellers and then make it fresh again or make the attempt to. That's that's the process. Uh, what what I'm I'm thinking about your question. I'm thinking, well, what what would happen if we pulled any human interaction out of a Godzilla movie? And there have been people uh, who I, I sometimes think right, righteously say, well, we don't need all this, this stuff with the human beings. I came to see the monster movie. Mm. So essentially what you're saying is, I came to see a creature rise out of the depths, wreck utter havoc until it's done wrecking havoc and going away. Now, I may, it may be wrecking havoc by, by battling another monster. It may be just wrecking havoc on its own. But I think if we try to pull away all those anthropomorphic uh, insertions and just see at a distance, or maybe have a close-up shot, like uh, when Bambi meets Godzilla. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever seen that, but it's a terrible, it's a little cartoon. Look it up on YouTube. <laughs> Bambi doesn't end well. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> uh, um, it's... There's so many cartoons, there's so many iterations of those video games and such that, it, that, but if you pull the humans out, what is that story really saying? And um, I don't think that would have the effect that the original intent was. Do we appropriate things? Do we reconceive things because of where we are in our own particular time? Yes, that's the nature of storytelling. Um, and does pop cultural storytelling pretty much do philosophy we've talked about that and some of our uh, it certainly does um but what does it do and is it is it in a in a discernible lineage from the original message well i think the climate thing is an appropriation that is true enough to the original that 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 makes it authentic mm. yeah but but i think that what you hit on before we said well now we have both the nuclear and climate well, that's exactly what we have now. We, yeah. we have the, the very real possibility every single day. People don't like to think about it, <laughs> that, that old nuclear silos go bad and some, some group gets a, a bomb. But we have Russia shooting cruise missiles now. That's the next level up. We're pretty close to nuclear. And 
And it, it seems inconceivable in the 21st century after all we thought we had learned about these weapons, the mad policy of mutual assured mass destruction so you don't use them. But sooner or later, somebody comes around and says, so long and says, well, we can use the minor ones because that wouldn't cause destruction everywhere. And probably nobody's going to use them back against us because they really wouldn't. So it's this, it's this scare game. It's, it's, and I think that the scare game of the nuclear, uh, un, untended nuclear uh, power, or nuclear power in the, in the hands of, of despots and autocrats and madmen, uh, is just as frightening. Uh, perhaps even more so because it's faster and we have experience with it. We've had our experience with the climate crisis since the industrial age. Mm. But it's across generations, and nobody wants to see it because, after all, we just got to live our lives the same way we got to live our lives until Godzilla comes along, until the oceans rise, until the winds change, and you have titanic uh, tornadoes, which we are getting, and cyclones and hurricanes that are larger. These are Godzilla. Yeah. And, and that, and so I think it's authentic for that. Yeah. No, I think that was a really good description. I think the the important thing to point out is that you know one one thing that we've talked about a lot that I didn't anticipate talking about in this episode was um, storytelling, the role of storytelling and yeah. storytelling tropes, and how, um, like you said, that humans are creative beings naturally, and like I was talking about from that study, creative creativity is is almost guaranteed to appropriate stories and, and twist them and change them and tell them their own way, and um, you know, I think that while that's natural, um, I think that it, it can be for the better or the worse, right? And if we look at the original American appropriation of Godzilla, um, it's it's pretty obvious to to say that um, from what the story was meant to tell, that was a negative appropriation. Mm. Um, and it it talk, you know, it's uh, encapsulates kind of that American. Um, a lot of the American ideals and in, in the way that it did it. Right. So, you know, it's, it's, um, you can't have a nuclear powered monster tromping through the world in McCarthyist 1950s. Right. United States. You can't have it. You won't have it because that's not the narrative. And yet we and did, so, but we, we, right, we, we changed right. it. Though, right? <laughs> exactly. It. It's that. That's back to the bipolarity of it doesn't exist, but of course it does. Yeah. <laughs> and that's when the monsters show. And so, as a result, we took this thing um, that was very openly um, confronting us about the nuclear bombs that we had dropped on Japan, a, you know, a decade before. Um, and, and taking that very harsh, um, very in-your-face sort of message and, and twisting it into an American thing um, that, that gives us a better, uh, gives us some warm and fuzzies, right? Mm-hmm. Kind of like um, what you were talking about with the benevolent universe um, theory. And, and it's not really what Godzilla was about. Godzilla is about history shows us again and again that nature points out the folly of man. Right? That, that's exactly where you start us. And that's right. A little side note. I think this is, this is a very telling thing about the difference between, and I'm not heroifying. I'm not, I'm, I'm not, 
uh, it's not a value judging in saying this, but I think it's an interesting thought piece. Um, you know, a few years after the absolute destruction of uh, millions and, or at least let's say hundreds of thousands, so really millions from the, the, the radiations uh, of, of two cities. A few years later, this this movie is coming along to talk to us about that. When when we had, and if you think about it in the terms of what Japan faced, we had the minor horror, horror all the same, of two towers coming down in New York City. And for years, uh, filmmakers were absolutely uh, had to abjure uh, they 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 had to refrain from showing any major city destruction because it was just too hard for people to bear. They didn't want to see skyscrapers falling on a screen, right? And and at the same time, um, creating stories that were are direct parallels to what happened. So you see the proliferation at that time of um, war films uh, that are heroifying. Um, counter-terrorist yeah. um, sort of operations. Yeah. Japan didn't do that. They didn't create a film about the American versus the Japanese military where the Japanese military succeeded. No, no they created a metaphor for nuclear um, weapons yeah. in, in general. And in a way, I mean, if you look at <laughs> you look at the, uh, the longevity of the film, despite of how it's been twisted, um, there's something a bit more powerful in how that came about i think i i think so i i, I think it's the japanese culture is ancient they know how to tell stories yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have nearly as much experience yet yeah so yeah i mean this is it's been fascinating you know it was really fun looking up godzilla and, and all the different ways that people have have interpreted um, the story and, and and the ways the messages that have been portrayed and you know the fun parts of it and yeah. but also the deeper parts of it. Mm-hmm. So until next time, keep pondering.